In what are called the pastoral epistles, Paul teaches Titus and Timothy how to select and qualify those who will lead the congregations of the faithful, and also how to be an example of the believers. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Gospel Doctrine this week is number 42, New Testament, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon. Be thou an example of the believers. As always, should you care to contact me, email the program at gt at This week's first question comes from Milt, and Milt says, about the Anderson guides that I recommended last week, these are two guides, both by Richard Lloyd Anderson, one called Guide to the Life of Christ, and one called Guide to Acts and the Apostles' Letters. And he says, I can't find either of these guides anywhere. What do you suggest? So thank you for your question, Bill. I was able to find two or three copies of each on Amazon. You have to look under used books, and Anderson is spelt with an S-O-N. So I hope you can find those and uh, let the race begin, because there are a lot of you out there. But I do highly recommend these books. They're textbooks for BYU religion courses. So there's a little bit of work to do in there if you care to fill them out like a workbook. But I do highly recommend those two books. Our second question comes from Rinda. And Rinda writes, in 1 Timothy 5.25, it struck me where he says, the good works of some are manifest beforehand. What does he mean by that? Very good question, Rinda. So I'll read that in the King James translation that is 1 Timothy chapter 5, well, let's start with 24. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So the Greek word that means open beforehand is the word prodelos, which actually means manifest beforehand, but it It really just means manifest. It means obviously manifest. So you might think of it as the way we would say something similar is the conclusion is foregone. You know about it almost before it happens. So some men's sins are so well known that we know about, they know that man is going to do that sin before it happens. In other words, some sinners are obvious sinners, but even those who are not, their works will be found out. And in verse 25, the good works of some are obvious. We know that that person is always going to be good, but even those who aren't, their good works will follow them. You may receive an open reward quickly, or you may have to wait for it. But either way, it's worth doing good, because if you don't, then you will either receive a punishment quickly, or it will eventually find you. In either case, you will be rewarded according to your deeds. That's 1 Timothy 5, verse 24 and 25. Thank you for that question, Rinda. And please don't hesitate to send your questions in, and don't hesitate to submit your five-star ratings or reviews using your podcast app on your iPhone or on your Android phone with Google in Google Play or on Facebook. These help many people to find us, and also I read all of those reviews, and they're very much appreciated. So this week's lesson, you, you might think it's very obscure. I mean, who can remember what the content of First and Second Timothy is, or who's ever heard, even heard of Philemon? But 
it's actually extremely profound, and uh, so I'm excited to get to it. I'm actually going to do this sort of in reverse order. So we're going to start with Philemon. And uh, before I begin, I'm going to mention that I have four dilemmas that I'm going to be pointing out. So there is actually, there are some themes that that unify all four of these letters. And um, specifically, seeming contradictions in what Paul is teaching. So uh, I, I call them the four dilemmas of today's lesson. And the, the word dilemma is actually a Greek word. Di meaning two, and lemma is a proposition or a, a logical assumption that you make before you begin. So if you present someone with a dilemma, you've given them a difficult choice. They have to accept one of two uh, unpalatable or distasteful options. And when you're on the horns of a dilemma, somebody has placed you in front of a charging bull, and with either side you go to, you're going to be impaled on one of those horns, and you're not going to like it. And so um, some philosophers say, you know, I found the way between the horns of the dilemma, which means you jump over the head of the bull. So we're going we're gonna to examine these dilemmas today and, and see if we can't jump over the head of the bull and avoid getting impaled on either of the horns. So um, the, first, the first dilemma we'll, we'll bring up in just a moment. It, it's brought up by the, the letter to Philemon. So Philemon is a well-to-do Roman from Colossae. So this letter was sent along with, we, we can assume that it was bundled with the letter to the Colossians. And that, and in fact, uh, the, the same deliverer, the same messenger is mentioned in both, a man named Onesimus. So the, the subject of this letter is, uh, it basically boils down, has one chapter, and it boils down to Paul is asking Philemon to free his slave Onesimus. And this, this is important for a few reasons. First of all, it's illegal for a slave to escape. So the fact that Onesimus has escaped, what, what, what Onesimus has done, and, and we read in Philemon that at some point he has been an unprofitable slave. And we read in verse 11, or in, we'll start in verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Now, Paul uses a, uh, this, this begotting, begetting language that he also used with Timothy and Titus and with the Corinthians, and the, the meaning of it is, I have given birth to you as a Christian. I have uh, begotten you is what a father does to a child. A mother gives birth, a father begat, begets, as they say in the scriptures, scriptural language. So I have been a father to you in the sense that I have imparted to you eternal life rather than, than earthly life. Paul is a father in that sense to Philemon, and now he's saying uh, that Onesimus is also one of his children in that same sense. So Onesimus has escaped from his slavery and made his way to wherever Paul was, probably either in uh, Caesarea Maritima, which is where Paul was imprisoned before he was shipped to Rome, or in Rome, as it says in the notes at the bottom of the chapter. Uh, those notes, by the way, are, are much later, generally much later than the subject of the scripture that they describe. And so they, they have some validity, but they're not to be trusted absolutely. So Paul was probably in prison. He's writing out of prison. Onesimus comes unto him. Paul teaches him the gospel. And Onesimus, when he escapes from slavery, doesn't know where to go. He thinks, I can go to Paul. Paul has taught my master these wonderful truths that all men are equal. Uh, you know, I'm guessing about Onesimus' state of mind. So 
Paul does. He teaches Onesimus the gospel, and he is converted. And then he turns around, and he writes this letter. Now, he, he does something interesting. Uh, he, he sort of puts Philemon in a, an inescapable trap. In verse 6, uh, we'll, we'll start with verse 4. This is what Paul says to Philemon. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you. So this word communication is actually a a Greek word, koinonia, koinonia, which means fellowship or partnership. So what uh, it actually means something that is shared. In other words, you, you have become a part of the fellowship of the saints and you share this faith with them. The connotation of this word is something that is not only uh, held and maintained, but it's not something that we think, but it's something that we actually do. It's a partnership in which we are actively involved. So Paul starts out by complimenting Philemon in being one of the saints in very deed. And then he starts talking about the fact that he has another child that he has begotten, Onesimus. And he sends Onesimus back saying, basically the teachings of Jesus tell us we're all equal. So I I admonish you to receive Onesimus as a brother because you're both my children. I've begotten you both. And uh, the it's interesting in verse 11 when he says, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. That's a play on Onesimus's name because his name means serviceable or helpful. So the, the interesting thing about this chapter now, we're, we're going to get into one of the dilemmas. So you remember the last couple of weeks, Paul has actually written in his epistles to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, and as we'll study this week, uh, in his epistle to Timothy, he's written that slaves should respect their masters. And Paul does not want to upset the entire social order of the Roman Empire where slaves are concerned. In fact, the, there are a huge proportion of the population that are slaves. It is not part of Paul's teaching that all slaves should be freed. And nevertheless, what he's saying here is that this person has learned about Christ and therefore uh, he, you should no longer, you should not do what the law allows you to do and slap him back into bonds and punish him for escaping, but you should receive him as a brother and as an equal and let him remain free. So this is the first dilemma. How do we reconcile these two teachings of Paul? And as we go, we'll talk about uh, the way that is. Now, something very interesting about Philemon as, a, as an epistle, it's the only book in uh, Paul's all of Paul's writings that doesn't mention the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's, expl- let's explore a little bit why. When, when After Paul makes this request, he says, If thou count, this is verse 17 of Philemon, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him. So now Paul is saying, Ones- or, uh, Philemon, you're a partner. And in verse 17, Paul connects that to himself. If thou count therefore me a partner, Receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. This is Paul putting himself in the exact position that Jesus put himself with all of us. Paul is saying, I, if there, if there is a legal penalty to pay, I will pay it. He, 
it's not exactly, uh, I'm not sure that it's 100% genuine. I shouldn't say genuine. I'm sure Paul meant it. But he also knew that Onesimus would, or that Philemon would never exact the full penalty of the law against himself, Paul. Nevertheless, I'm sure he also meant it because he, he obviously loved Onesimus as much as he loved Philemon. Uh, the other scriptural account I was reminded of was that of the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan ca- carries this wounded Jew to an inn and then says, if there's anything else that is owed, I will pay thee on my return. And of the, the story of Abigail, and this is a more obscure story from the book of Samuel, where Abigail's husband has offended David before he's king, and all of his soldiers have been protecting their flocks and their lands against anyone who would attack them. And all he asked for was a little bit of sustenance to keep them going. And Abigail's husband refuses, and so David in his anger is going to come, up, come into their camp and kill everyone. And Abigail, when she hears that he's refused to even send them some simple food, she prepares it and rides out to meet him. And, and then she explains, she begs forgiveness for what her husband has done, as if she herself has done it. This is a truly, let's say, pivotal moment in the Old Testament. And I spent quite a bit of time on this last year. Uh, that's in episode 23 of our Old Testament podcast, so I recommend at least the second half of that episode if you're interested to hear more about Abigail. So Paul has done the same thing here that we read in those other accounts. He's put himself in the place of the sinner and says, upon my head be it. I'm also reminded of Doctrine and Covenants, I believe it's section 46, where Christ is our advocate with the Father pleading our case before him, and he doesn't say, uh, Father, look at how much they've repented. What, what he says is, Father, behold the sufferings and death of thine only begotten Son. So that may be the, the reason that Paul does not actually mention the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in this, uh, in this epistle, alone among all Paul's epistles. We'll talk a little bit more about how to escape the dilemma that Paul has two teachings about slaves. In a, in a few moments when we talk about uh, the Paul's teachings of slavery in 2 Timothy. So Titus and Timothy are actually, the and First and 2 Timothy are actually what are called the pastoral epistles, meaning Paul is writing to a pastor. Now a pastor in uh, old English language was a name we gave to a shepherd. And when it's applied to a clergyman, it means somebody who has care over a flock just as it does a shepherd. It means somebody who is directly in contact with the people to whom he's ministering. So in Latter-day Saint parlance, we would say that a pastor is a bishop, somebody who has one congregation. So these pastoral letters, um, it, it the, the word bishop is used a lot, and so it seems like that Titus and Timothy are also bishops. But as we'll discover, the calling of Titus and Timothy is actually to, to select bishops, or as they're interchangeably called, presiding elders or just elders. So they are each given training in how to select leaders of local congregations. Uh, the, the analogy that occurred to me was, first of all, Paul seems to me, if I were to draw a, la- a latter-day parallel to Paul. The, the apostle that seems closest to me would be Elder Maxwell. So it feels a little bit like Elder Maxwell writing a letter to, when, when 
when Paul writes a letter to Timothy, it feels a little bit like Elder Maxwell writing a letter to Elder Bednar, who would later become an apostle. Uh, I have no idea whether this is accurate. I shouldn't say I have no idea. It feels accurate to me, but I don't have, I can't prove it. Um, but we do know that Timothy accompanied Paul on a ton of his journeys, and that Paul was constantly saying in his letters, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Um, Timothy is going to bring these news to you. I couldn't come, so I sent Timothy in my stead. So Timothy had a great deal of trust. In fact, so Paul has sort of three categories. He he has the category of people that he teaches. He loves everyone he teaches, and he wants them all to accept the truth. And then there are those people that he believes are capable of being leaders in their congregations, in their church communities that he establishes. And then there are those few people that Paul sees as someone who is capable of doing exactly what he himself does. And Timothy and Titus, they fit that, that very category. So we might think of... They're, they're, organization was nowhere near as well-defined as what we have today. But we might think in modern terms as of Timothy and Titus as being perhaps special assistant, anywhere from special assistant to the 12, all the way down to maybe a regional representative, a, an area authority 70, a stake president even. So we don't know exactly where that would be. And perhaps the church wasn't big enough to need all of those positions. So Titus was sent to Crete to establish leadership in a number of cities across the island of Crete, which was between the, the coast of Israel and Lebanon and Greece to the west. So it's just this island in the middle of the eastern Mediterranean. Now, Crete was famous for having people, the, the Cretans, C-R-E-T-A-N, uh, there was a prejudice against Cretans in the ancient Near East where they had, a, they had a reputation for being treacherous, so dishonest, for being lustful people, for being corrupt and violent. So you just couldn't trust them. In addition, Crete was the legendary birthplace of the god of the Greek god Zeus. And so Paul begins his letter saying, I'm, I, you are to teach, the God who is honest, the God who can never break a promise. And this is a clear contrast to Zeus. So Titus is going to arrive in Crete, and he's going to teach about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is uh, the obviously the God we all believe in, who is all-seeing, all-good, all-powerful, and is much in contrast to the God that the Cretans believe in. And Titus is given the charge in chapter 1, uh, in verses 5 to 9, to ordain a presiding elder in every city. The word bishop that's used here is actually, in Greek, it's episkopos. Now, you may rec- recognize that term from the church, from the word of the Episcopalian church. But also take it apart, and you'll realize you are already knew the word meaning bishop. Scopos, you'll recognize scope in there. It means to see. And epi is a word meaning over. So your epidermis is an outer layer of skin that covers your dermis, your inner skin. That's a common, actually a quite common uh, prefix in English. So episcopos is an overseer. A bishop is simply a leader or a supervisor. That's the word that Paul used. Is like, I want you to call supervisors. And he, and he also used the term elders. He used these words interchangeably. And the problem that the Cretans were experiencing, the 
these church communities had already been established, but there were these teachers, and Paul describes them as being those of the circumcision, that are totally corrupt, and they're teaching doctrines that are leading people astray from the, from the truth. Paul actually quotes, and he says that he quotes, this is a, this is a named quote, uh, he quotes a, a Greek philosopher, Epimenides, who is himself a Cretan, and Paul says, I, I'm, t- I'm talking from one of their own prophets. These are words from his own mouth. Cretans are always liars. They're vicious beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. They're only in it for the money. So Paul doesn't have a very high opinion of Cretans either. What he's saying is that you have to help them to overcome the, not only their human nature, but also the society they live in, which is quite wicked. Now, I think here it would be appropriate to say something about Jewish Gnosticism. Now, this word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, is a word meaning knowledge. It's a Greek word, but it also has become an English word. So if you are agnostic, it means this, this prefix a can mean not. So if you're amoral, it means you are not moral. It doesn't mean you're immoral. It doesn't mean you have morals that are against morality. It means you're outside of morality you actually consider yourself to not care about morals. If you're an atheist, it means you don't. You believe that there is no God. Not that you don't know whether there's a God or not, but that you actually affirm that there is no God, that God does not exist. If you're an agnostic, it means you don't have knowledge about whether God exists. So that's, that's a little uh, mnemonic for remembering the word gnosis, which is knowledge. And Jewish, Jewish Gnosticism, it was, a, it was a, a growing belief, it was a growing heresy that we're saved not by faith, repentance, and grace of the, the grace of Christ, but that we're saved by some sort of secret knowledge that we had to learn about by, that had to be transmitted to us from somebody who knew it and that we had to be inducted into some sort of secret way. Along with that came the belief that the material world itself was wicked, that God would have, would have had, a God that was good would have had nothing to do with creating a material world, and we must have come about in some other way. We are a mistake, and our flesh is evil and should be shunned, and therefore there are certain, this leads to certain modes of behavior. One of the teachings that Paul warns against is that we should not eat certain kinds of food, probably meat, and that men should, that people should not marry. In other words, we, there's no point in continuing our race in perpetuating the species because flesh itself is evil. Uh, we actually see echoes of this philosophy today. And there is actually some, this, this is one of the reasons why the authorship of these epistles is disputed because for a long time people believed that the, the Jewish Gnostics did not, were not, trying to spread their philosophy until the second century, let's say 50 to 100 years after Paul had already died. And so that's one argument that Paul could not have written these epistles because he seems to be countering the Gnostic philosophy. There are, there are signs in what he's saying. He doesn't actually outline the philosophy that he's combating, but there are signs in what he's saying that he seems to have run up against some of the Gnostics. And if that's the case then Paul, then somebody maybe 50 years later had to have written these epistles. Now, the counter-argument to that, and that's one that is espoused by 
Dr. Anderson in his book, is that the these these philosophies had to have been spoken about long before they were written about. Not only that, but there are so many Christian writings that we've heard of, but that we don't have any examples of. So how is it that Gnostic philosophy would be any different from that? There would have been people spreading it orally before it was ever written down, and there's probably many writings that have not survived from Paul's very time period. So that is not a convincing argument that Paul could not have run against, run up against Gnostics just because we have no surviving writings of them from the first century. And the truth is we're starting to find more and more evidence that there were Gnostics active in Paul's time. And if the word Gnostic is not familiar to you, you may, if you've ever read any of the church writings on the great apostasy, you may remember that the, one of the complaints was that the early church members, after the death of the apostles, they started to mix their beliefs with Greek philosophy. And this is the exact philosophy. So these two ideas that the that we're saved by hidden knowledge and that the, the physical world, the material world, is evil. Now, the, these beliefs were not one, there were not one set of beliefs that people had an orthodoxy around. They had any number of different beliefs that were mixed with them. Sometimes they were mixed with Greek pantheism, and sometimes they were simply mis- mixed with a, uh, a secular philosophy. But they, they did share a, a couple of patterns that we've talked about. So Paul was running up against this, and he called them fables and endless genealogies. But for right now, the point is that the teachers, the ones who are giving all of these problems to the Cretans, are those of the circumcision. And so what Paul does with Titus is he, he contrasts how Christians should be behaving with how the Cretan members are actually behaving. They're, they're called upon, he's calling upon them to manifest a pattern of good works. They, he wants the members of the church to be examples of integrity, self-control, family values, because the gospel has to be seen. It's, it, it's not just that it has to be, transform an individual inside. He has to, the, the gospel has to be seen to be worthwhile, and it should visibly transform those who use it, not just internally transform them. The reason for that, I mean, I'm, I can tie it into what Jesus said that a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, and a light you don't take a light and hide it under a bushel, but you put it on a candlestick. The point of that was when you have something that really does transform you, when you when you truly have experienced the grace of God, you want to share it. And if the gospel actually doesn't make people better, but if people look at Christians in Crete and say, wow, not only are they just like everyone else, but they're claiming that they're better, and so they're as wicked as all of us, but they're hypocrites to boot. And that would make Christianity a real joke. Not only would it not be true in the sense that the people who are living it are not having their lives transformed, but they're actually worse because they're claiming that they have a moral system that elevates them above. So what what Paul is saying to Titus is you've got to help them understand how Christianity should truly transform them and also that Christianity has to has to be visibly better. It has to help people. Maybe it does maybe Christians aren't better than other people, but an individual Christian has to be better than he would be without Christianity in his life. A believer in Jesus should be improved from the person he was before.
And in chapter 3, Paul continues that theme. Christians need to rise above the wickedness of their surrounding culture. And they do that, the, the way they're able to do that is by inspiration, by m- being motivated by God's, the generosity of God's grace. The very definition of grace is a gift that we don't deserve. And so because God has been so generous to us, then we can be made heirs of this huge royal inheritance that is eternal life because of the intercession of of Christ in our lives. And if Christ is willing to do that for us, then maybe we can rise above the wickedness that surrounds us. And the reason, I mean, this feels almost hopeless. There are a few people who are already wicked. Paul has made converts, and they're wicked. They're living wickedly in a, an area where they're surrounded by wickedness. And yet, Paul never gives up hope. That's the interesting thing about Paul. He never gives up hope in his converts. He continuously prays for them, and he writes to them, and he revisits them, because he will never give up on them. And I believe that's because he himself was brought, brought unto the fold of Christ from such a dark place. He was, as he says many times, I was the chief. He says in, the, in these very letters, uh, he says, I was the chief among the sinners. And so Paul knows personally, he, he feels the value of the message that he brings, and he knows that it will transform people if they'll just give it a chance. So he'll never give up on anyone. What a powerful missionary attribute to have. That's the letter to Titus. Now, Titus and 1 Timothy are probably written in a similar time in Paul's life. You remember the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome waiting his trial on appeal to Caesar. He was accused by the Jews, and uh, in order to escape their assassination plot, he appealed to the local leader, and he was carried to Caesarea Maritima, and then he appealed to Caesar from there, and then no Jews appeared in Rome to actually appear at his trial and accuse him. So we can assume that things went well for him. The legend has it that Paul was on his way eastward or westward to Spain. He always wanted to go to Spain. And there were a few other travels that he wanted to make. And the general consensus of scholarship is that this happened around 63 or 64, and that Paul was imprisoned a second time in Rome, and that he was then at that time killed. So this may have happened around the first imprisonment of Paul, or perhaps in between the two imprisonments. And second Timothy happened during his final imprisonment, or at least that's the appearance from the content of the letter itself. So the first time Paul writes to Timothy, he's writing to Ephesus. So he's already sent a letter to the Ephesians. This is not the letter to the church congregation at large. This is the letter to somebody he trusts, not only to be a congregational leader, but to train and to find other congregational leaders. And there are a couple of themes here. The first one is that good theology will lead to righteous living. And the second is that it is important, as he wrote to Titus, it's important for the church to maintain a good reputation. It's not not just that the church needs to transform the lives of those who live it. It's that it has to be seen to do so. So let's get back to some of our dilemmas. Uh, One of the dilemmas was that the first one we talked about was the dilemma of slavery. So... How do we reconcile that that Philemon had to receive Onesimus as a brother, and yet Paul has said, and he says again here in his epistle to Timothy, 
that slaves should respect their masters and they should be humble and stay in their place, right? So did Paul believe in slavery or did he not? Now, I want to give you a, uh, just a little thought experiment. Think about this for a moment. If Paul had decided, and if Jesus had decided, that the message of Christianity was that slaves had to be freed and that all people were equal, therefore no one could hold another person in, in servitude of the kind that they had. It was not the slavery that we had in the United States. But if that was the message of Christianity, how far do you think this movement would have spread? How long would it have taken before the, the spread of Christianity became synonymous with free your slaves? It basically would have turned into, uh, this is my belief, this is what probably would have happened, it would have turned into a revolt movement. This would have been a revolutionary movement against Caesar. Instead, what Paul says is, we need to be subject to kings and magistrates. So in other words, Paul, there, there are a number of times, these are called the household rules or the, the family rules that Paul says, wives and husbands need to treat each other a certain way, children need to respect their parents, and slaves need to respect their masters. What Paul is doing in all of these admonitions is, he's saying the transformation of the Christian household needs to happen strategically. And in the meantime, we all have to have respect for each other. And if you do, if you are a slaveholder in ancient Greece, then you have to be kind, be loving towards the people that are your servants, because they are your brothers in the gospel as well, brothers and sisters in the gospel. And does he say you got to free them immediately? And if you're a slave, then you don't you don't have to stick around. No, he's saying please keep your obligations to each other and. Those obligations include, if you are in a position of power, that you have to treat those underneath you with love and respect. Now, a possible parallel would be, uh, there are a couple of times in the scriptures when people had all things in common. One was right in the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts. Another is in 4th Nephi, and another is found in the book of Moses, where there were no poor among them. So the city of Zion, or the, or the Nephites after the appearance of Christ, and they shared everything. And we've been told in, in our dispensation that, that, that the days are coming when we'll live that day as well, and yet we're not being called upon to live that. If that was the political message of our church, how long do you think it would be before that was the only thing that people associated us with? And we, were, we would spend all of our time either defending or explaining that doctrine. Instead, what we teach is, that would be, wouldn't that be a great way for us all to live? And in the meantime... We're called upon to be as good as we can. There are those people who are ahead of the curve, you might say, that are preparing the world for the kind of existence that we'll live when Christ comes again. They're doing it in their own lives. They're making themselves the kind of people that will inhabit that world. And I think that's the reasoning behind what Paul teaches. On the one hand, he does believe that all people are equal. And in the case of Onesimus, he has an opportunity to make a difference in a single life. But in the society at large, for him to equate Christianity with a slave rebellion would basically mean the end of his ability to spread the gospel and the end of all the church communities that he'd created. The Romans would have stomped down on them with in nothing flat, and that would have ended the spread of Christianity as we know it. That's just a fact. So that's how I reconcile that particular dilemma. Now, 
I'm going to jump ahead to 2 Timothy. In uh, the, the first chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul says, look, I know that I've been imprisoned a lot. I have basically spent a ton of my life in prison, and everyone knows it. I'm known for, for being in and out of jail. Uh, I'm not wealthy, I'm not successful, and there are those who are ashamed of me. So on the one hand, Paul is saying that the church, the, the religion, the gospel should not only be transformative, but should be seen to be transformative. And on the other hand, I don't want you, Timothy, to be ashamed of me, Paul, because I've been in jail, because I have been oppressed, and because the authorities almost everywhere I go don't like me. So how do we reconcile that? On the one hand, Paul says, we've got to appear to the world to be respectable. And on the other hand, don't be ashamed of me because uh, I've been in bondage and because now I'm in prison. This dilemma is a little different than the others because I actually don't think there is a great answer to it other than to say that Jesus Christ himself embodied this very dilemma. So on the one hand, he had, as I've referenced many times in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he had no form nor comeliness that men should desire him. And in the other hand, he said that a city that is set on a hill could not be hid. So the, I, I leave that in your minds that maybe it can percolate through your thoughts as you think about these scriptures this week. How do we reconcile those two ideas that we need to be seen? Not only do we need to be righteous, but we need to be seen to be better than we were before we received the gospel. We can't be hypocrites, especially not publicly, but also that we, when we suffer and are seen to suffer for the cause of Christ, we're really following in Christ's footsteps. And Paul was proud of the fact that he was willing to suffer in Christ's name. Now here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul has another, um, another example of the, these teachings, these household teachings, where he talks about a woman's role in relation to her husband or in relation to men. And that leads us to our third dilemma, which is, uh, on the one hand, Paul talks about valiant women teachers, right? Women who have been not only faithful in the cause of Christ, but also who have been leaders. And I'll give you a few examples. A woman named Phoebe, Junia, Priscilla. Look up Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 7. Look up Acts chapter 18, verse 26. And also in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about, in the first chapter, Paul talks about his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, right? These, these women. So Paul has many examples of valiant women, and not only valiant, but leaders. And on the other hand, Paul says, let your women learn in silence and in all subjection. Now, uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because I've spent, I, I think I spent three lessons. When we talked about 2 Corinthians, when we talked about Galatians, and when we talked about Ephesians, this, this topic came up. So I've, I think I've done a fair job of, of addressing this topic, but I wanted to bring up the fact that this is one of the dilemmas and... Uh, one of the one of the ways to look at this is in in First Tim- Timothy chapter two verse eleven. So a woman should learn in silence. Now it's interesting to note that this uh, this word silence is hesukia. Actually, means inner peace and calm. So a woman doesn't have to keep her mouth shut. Uh, that's just a, an artifact of our translation. Uh, inner peace and calm. She should learn in inner peace and calm. And is it only women that have to learn this way? 
Actually, no. In that very chapter, in verse 2, Paul describes that a man should, that we should pray for our leaders so that we can live a Hesukion life. That same word, a peaceful life, a life with inner peace and calm. And this, in that verse, in in verse 2, as opposed to verse 11, uh, this is a masculine ideal. So both men and women should strive for this inner peace, this calm, this quiet that can lead, that it's the kind of peace that can lead to the spread of the gospel. Along those lines, uh, at, at the beginning of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul says, pray for your civil rulers, pray for the kings, pray for those who are in charge of your government, because when there is peace, that is the ideal environment for the gospel to spread. It's interesting that we should be studying this week because it was just uh, this week in the past few days that President Ballard was in Boston and he gave this very talk. He said, uh, it, we are a nation founded on prayer and I'm asking you all to pray for the leaders of our government. And I believe that the reason is exactly the same, that we are experience a t- experiencing a time when peace is being threatened. And... Peace is actually the ideal environment for the gospel to spread. And what President Ballard is trying to do is to say, look, your thoughts, your prayers actually have power to bring peace on earth and allow more people to hear about Christ. So let's exercise that power. And he has a pretty big big microphone. When he talks, there are millions of people who are here, will hear that. And he's recognizing, I've got the power to mobilize millions of prayers and to create more peace on earth. And even if it's just a little bit that we can move the needle, that's enough that maybe a few more missionaries can get their foots in the door, feet in the door, and and talk and teach a few more lessons and gain a few more converts and bring Christ to a few more hearts. Isn't that a wonderful goal? And it's a coincidence that we'd be studying that. So, Chapter 2, now we're still in uh, 1 Timothy, now we're in chapter 2. And Paul Paul describes their particular kind of wickedness. The men are disputing and engaging in contention about theology. And what are the women doing? They're wearing costly apparel. And some of them, the rich ones, are shaming the others because they can't afford to dress the same way. Uh, Interesting that that's what's going on because I think all of us have seen similar... It's not that these... These sins are isolated to men and women. We've, we've seen similar iniquities in our own day, and I think we've all been subject to some of these very tendencies in our own lives, right? We've seen these same attitudes. And we also see it in the Book of Mormon. So it's interesting that this would not only be widespread, it would be universal across space, but also across time. Something else that's interesting, Paul, about the way Paul describes women, you know, he uses Eve as an example. Eve was deceived and therefore women should, should be subject to men. Uh, there are a couple of theories about this. One is that Adam is being used here as an allegory for Christ, and that Eve is the church. And so therefore, we as the church members should be subject to Christ in all humility, right? In all subjection. Uh, and by the way, the word subjection doesn't it doesn't have the same connotation for Paul as it does for us. What he's saying is that women should learn an inner peace and give to their teachers the, all of the respect that comes from someone who's teaching you. So an interesting thing about Adam and Eve, and we'll talk about this more at, uh, when we discuss uh, perfection in 2 Timothy, but remember that when God created the world, he saw that it was good and that the fruit 
that Adam and Eve were commanded not to partake of was a fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So remember that, and we'll come back to it. Now, uh, one more, the third of our uh, dilemmas is this dilemma about women. So on the one hand, that women need to learn in silence, women need to be subject. Eve was the first one to be deceived. On the other hand, there are all these faithful women and women leaders, right? So in this particular case, I'm going to leave it there. I feel like I've done a pretty good job in addressing this dilemma, but I wanted to bring it up again and show that it's still, it's still a concern for many as it comes up in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So I encourage you to revisit those earlier podcasts if you still want to hear more. And we are going to talk about the way that Paul uses the fall. I think that'll resolve some more concerns. The, the fall, it se- he seems to be saying that uh, women are lesser because Eve is the one who first succumbed to the deceptions of Satan. I don't believe that's the case. Now, it's interesting, uh, we're going on to chapter 3 now of of 1 Timothy. It's interesting that we discussed in the 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we discussed the apostasy, right? And And I explained the idea that maybe Paul wasn't saying, look, Timothy, there's going to be a great apostasy, there's going to be hundreds of years where there is no gospel. What I believe Paul was, or I'm sorry, not Timothy, but to the Thessalonians, he's saying, Thessalonians, what I believe he was saying is, Within a few years, you're going to see these kind of thing, things happen. Uh, some of the things that Paul says to Timothy are along similar lines. He's saying, in the latter times. And this could all equally be translated as later times. In other words, Paul in chapter 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy could be saying to Timothy, within your lifetime, here are some things you're going to see. And the one of the evidences that this is what he meant is right there in verse 3. So this is now chapter 4 of uh of 1 Timothy, you're going to see people teaching that that other people should not marry, that they should abstain from meats, that they should forbid them to eat meat. And this sounds a lot like Jewish Gnosticism. It sounds like the philosophies that were happening right then during Paul's lifetime, during Timothy's lifetime. It doesn't sound like Paul had a, a revelation to know that there were centuries of darkness and falling away from truth and lack of priesthood authority upon the earth, and that he was giving this prophecy to Timothy, which would not have helped Timothy a whole lot in his ministry. So it seems to me like what Paul was teaching Timothy was, here are some things to watch for, and these are ways in which people will be personal apostates. They they will be individual apostates. I'm not saying that Paul had no knowledge of a great apostasy, a general apostasy coming, and I'm not saying that he might not have communicated that to Timothy. I don't see evidence for it in this passage. Now in chapter 3, which we skipped over, Paul is basically giving a list of the requirements for someone who would serve as a bishop or for a, a, as a deacon, meaning a helper, a diakonos in Greek. Anyone who would be have one of these leadership callings in the church uh, I recommend reading the chapter. I, I actually really like the first verse. This is a true saying. If, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. But we'll pr- we're pressed for time. We'll have to leave that there. I do want to read verses 11 through 16, the last, five, the last six verses of chapter 4. Uh, and this, these verses are for anybody who feels a call to teach. And I suspect there are many people listening 
who use this podcast as a way to prepare themselves to teach uh, gospel doctrine or Sunday school, or even just teach your own family. So if you have felt that teaching is a calling in your life, then I would encourage you to let these verses sink in. Paul says to Timothy, These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth. But be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery, meaning the priesthood. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So that's that's a wonderful passage to reflect upon if you feel like teaching is something that God has called you to, to think about or to specialize in. Chapter 5 is... Interesting because uh, the, the doctrine here, it's not so much doctrine as it is policy. Paul is basically telling t- Timothy, look, here is the welfare policy of the church in Ephesus. Uh, if you have a bunch of widows who are pretending to, to be widows, to be older women that need help, but they're actually, they may be the same wealthy widows who are uh, dressing in fine clothes and making other women feel less than in, in chapter 2. Right, and he's saying, don't give the assistance of the church to people who aren't widows, isolated from family members. You need to save your assistance for those people. And he calls them uh, widows, indeed. Right, people who have no family, they have no possibilities, they have no money. You need to help those people and put them on the roster of widows, and keep the people off the list of widows that actually are going to gossip, that are going to hurt the church. Because they don't really care. What they want to do is be idle and spread a bunch of false doctrine and then dress in rich clothing and come to church and lord it over everyone. By giving them the church's assistance, you're encouraging that behavior. Don't do it. Incidentally, the fact that he brings this up again, to me, is evidence that when Paul is talking about Eve being deceived, what he's saying is uh, the women who are deceived, these women who are acting like they are prideful and that they have all the answers and they've been taken in by these corrupt teachers that we learn about in chapter one. These are the women who are like Eve and these are the women who should not be teaching in church. That's the way I read that passage. It's, uh, there, there are a lot of scholarly opinions that disagree with each other. People who are a lot smarter than me who have tried to interpret that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about how women need to learn in silence. So that's my interpretation, and there are a lot of people who have different opinions about it. Make your own decisions. And chapter 6 is sort of what we've talked about, where Paul again talks about this, uh, this charge to slaves to respect their master. So we've, we've addressed that, and what I want to talk about now is a poem so there are a couple of poems here in 1 Timothy. The first one is in chapter 1. It's verse 17. I'm going to read these poems for you. Uh, and I, I, I hope that by the end of today's lesson, we've talked about a few of Paul's poems in the last few weeks. I hope by the end of today's lessons, you can spot these when they show up. So 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, meaning unseen, by the way, 
Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a poem. That is a that is a prayer of praise unto God, and it's written in the form of poetry. Chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. That's the next one. And I'll read that to you as well. Uh, so in verse 14, Paul mentions Jesus Christ. And then in 15, he says, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So these are wonderful poems. I just figure they're worth reading since a poem is compressed language uh, expressing power, a powerful idea in hopefully a more eloquent way. So now on to our final book, and this is actually the final book of Paul's life, Second Timothy. Paul begins and ends this epistle by talking about his stay in prison. Now, what I kind of think is happening here, and this is me reading between the lines, is that Paul is calling to Timothy to come visit him so that he can bestow upon him the keys of the priesthood. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I kind of think that might be what's going on, because how? what do we learn about how the great apostasy occurred? The apostles died off one by one without having the chance to pass on their authority to new apostles. How were new apostles called? How could the apostles, the twelve, ever get all together in one place? It, we don't have a whole lot of evidence that that occurred at all after Acts chapter 15. And so, did it happen? How were new apostles called after that point? Timothy has spent enough time in Paul's company and under his tutelage that if anyone would be called as a a successor or a replacement for Paul, I believe it would be he. And in chapter 1, it feels to me like he's reminding Timothy of his calling. He's saying, accept the calling you've been given. Uh, Verse 6, he says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. So that seems to me Paul saying uh, that you've been called as an apostle. or And and even in our own dispensation, there used to be apostles that were special assistants to the Twelve. They had the the, uh, uh, Melchizedek priesthood office of apostle without being a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. So perhaps Timothy was something similar to that. We don't know. That's my guess. And the the point of chapter 1 is, uh, as I mentioned before, don't be ashamed of my repeated imprisonment. It's a risk for you to associate yourself with me, but everyone else has abandoned me, and I encourage you. You will be rewarded for attending to me because I need you and the Lord needs you to do this work. And in chapter 2, Paul begins by talking about three kinds of men who have to struggle against great odds or against great resistance in order to accomplish their goal. First is a soldier. This is in verses 3 to 6. A soldier needs to forget or put aside concerns about whether he's going to live or die and basically just try to accomplish his goal. An athlete. Now what Paul says is, uh, if a man strive for masteries... Uh, Paul elsewhere in his writings has used sports metaphors, and one is a boxer, and that's kind of what this is. It's either a boxer or a wrestler. Somebody who's striving for a mastery is someone who's in a fight, who's in a match, and uh, he's trying to win. 
So if a man strives for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. So he's going to have to obey the rules in his match, and he's going to have to be the strongest. He can't cheat to win. And finally, in verse 6, Paul likens Timothy to a farmer, somebody who's willing to work hard for a goal that takes a while to realize. So the encouragement to Timothy is, remember these three metaphors that I've given you. These are three vocations that are going to be very, when you see a soldier, when you see a farmer, when you see a wrestler, you're going to be very inspired. You're going to remember that I told you, you're like each of these who are striving for victory. You're striving to accomplish a goal that's greater than yourself. Uh, In verses 11 through 13, now listen to this. Here's another poem. This is a poem about restoration that you, and restoration in the way that Alma described it to his son, Corianton, when he, when he talked about how you have good for good returned to you again. Uh, and that's in Alma chapter 41. So I'm going to read this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It is a faithful saying, If we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. So there's a poem about Christ talking about how whatever we put out, that will return to us again. And the nature of Christ is unchanging. Now, that it's, it's a lot shorter, but compare that to the latter half or the latter third of Alma chapter 41, which is a, also a beautiful poem uh, written in the Hebrew style, even though we have it in English. Now, if you remember, in 2 Thessalonians, we learned about that Paul was concerned. Somebody had written a letter as if Paul himself had said the resurrection of the the rising of the dead, the coming of Christ, the day of the Lord has already come. Don't pay attention to anybody who tells you that because it won't come unless there's a falling away. Now, here we learn that this is still going on in verse 18 of, of 2 Timothy 2. Uh, He's talking about two men. In verse 17, he gives their names, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, in verse 18, concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So here's the doctrine, right? So here's the the final dilemma of this lesson. Paul has taught in other epistles, uh, most notably Colossians chapter 3, but also in in Titus chapter 2, he's taught you're dead and your life is with Christ in God. So the point, uh, I'm going to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. So Paul has explained uh, a form of resurrection or a form of newness of life when we're baptized, where we die according to things earthly and we live according to things heavenly. And then at the same time, uh, he's saying, don't pay heed to fables. The resurrection is not yet past. So here is another dilemma. Now, this is not one that we as Latter-day Saints are going to have a hard time with. It's obvious that he's both talking about a newness of life, that Christ can be born in our hearts, and we're still looking forward with glorious hope in the resurrection one day. But this was a dilemma for people at the time of Christ. They were many people, at the, I'm sorry, at the time of Paul, because there were many people taken in by this false doctrine, which was 
the resurrection is already past. Look, Paul himself has taught this. We are already dead. We're living in newness of life. And Paul, unless correct, he, unless he could get back often and teach correct doctrine, his followers were vulnerable to this teaching. And many people were led away, as he says. So this was one of the dangers that he was trying to train Titus and Timothy to protect against. That not only is, are we born in newness of life during our lives, but we do have a glorious resurrection to look forward to. Now a couple of famous chapters. You'll remember these verses. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also, starting right at the beginning, in the last days perilous times shall come. Again, is Paul, is Paul talking about our day? Did he look forward in time and see that there would be a Joseph Smith and there would be a restoration, and he's now describing uh, the time after the advent of the internet and all these, is he, is he really seeing this in prophecy? I don't think so. What I think is happening is Paul is telling Timothy, look, in a few years, in the later days, in days after the days of now, then perilous times shall come. And the reason that we uh, can think about this is he's describing, then he goes on, just as he did in 1 Timothy, he goes on to describe what's already happening in Ephesus, what he already knows about. Um, and you can, you can spot, if you read the rest of this, I won't go into the exact examples, but if you read the rest of this epistle, you can spot a lot of the type of conduct that Paul has already been decrying in Ephesus and he's saying, look, these things are going to get worse. The things you've already seen, this kind of behavior, the kind of personal apostasy that you've already seen, it's going to get worse. And the last days mean you're going to have to deal with this, you, Timothy, for the rest of your life. You're going to be seeing this in Ephesus and elsewhere. And it's going to lead to a lot more falling away than you've yet experienced. Um, but one of my favorite verses, and, and, but it's also true, the interesting thing is it's also true of the latter days as we know them. So Paul may have, may or may not have been intending this as a prophecy of thousands of, or hundreds of years into the future, and yet it does work in both ways. So in the last days, perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. In verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of thereof, from such turn away. Now those words you'll recognize, uh, Jesus used them, or God the Father used them, when talking to Joseph Smith, saying, uh, they, they, with their mouths they arrive uh, near to me, but they deny the power thereof. So there's obviously more going on here than just Paul talking to Timothy, and nevertheless, Paul was speaking about what's going to happen in Ephesus during Timothy's lifetimes. Ever learning, in verse 7, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that sad? Just as a side note, in verse 8, Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Now, a lot of scholars believe that these are the Egyptian court magicians. Even though they knew Moses was a prophet and they were using trickery, they were still willing to, they were still willing to deny that Moses was real, they, they pretended that what they had was just as real as what Moses had. And that's the same thing that those wicked teachers are doing in Ephesus, and also in Crete, by the way, in the, in the epistle of Titus. 
At the end of chapter 3, we have one of the most interesting scriptures in our entire lesson today. That's verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, in the King James Version, you would never guess all that's going on here in that small phrase. But the this word, the, the, the phrase, is given by inspiration of God, is actually one word in Greek. And that word is theopneustos, which is theo, you'll recognize, is God, and pneo in Portuguese and in some other Latin languages actually means attire. But P-N-E-U is a prefix which often has to do with air. So pneumonia means your lungs have been affected, right? Pneumatic drill or a pneumatic tool is something that uses air pressure to work. So theopneustos is the breath of God. All scripture is God-breathed, is this literally translated. Now you remember in Hebrew, the word for breath is ruach, which means, this, which means both breath and spirit. So this language is actually evoking images of Genesis chapter 1, as well as Ezekiel chapter 37. So in Genesis 1, God puts his breath, the breath of life, into Adam and Eve and brings them from dust into a living soul. In Ezekiel chapter 37, you remember there's this valley of dry bones, and then the, the wind, a mighty wind arises, and then you learn it's the breath of God. And the breath of God has the ability to transform something as dead as dry bones into a living army, a powerful army, a mighty army. So that's the word, those are the words that Paul uses to describe the scriptures. And to me, what that means is scriptures are to normal words as a mighty army is to a valley of dry bones. It's that much more powerful. That's what Paul means when he says that scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, if you just read that in English, this would be, you know, it's nice, but this, all this meaning would be lost for you. This is verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. What it really means is scripture has the power to breathe life into you, into, into your life. It, it brings the spirit of God into your life. So that's the nature of scripture. And then the rest of the verse, he, Paul is talking about the purpose of scripture. Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So in this one verse, Paul talks about how wonderful Scripture is, both in its nature and in its purpose. In verse 15, he says that Scriptures, you've known the Scriptures from the time you were a child, and the Scriptures can make you wise unto salvation. And then, so that's 15 and 16. In verse 17, Paul says, that the man of God may be perfect. Now we've talked about two different kinds of perfection. We talked about one that Jesus taught about, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, "Be thee therefore, be thou therefore perfect," right? And that was part of your that was teleos, that was part of your purpose. And then there was the perfection of the saints, which meant that God had given you that He had equipped you. Remember, we talked about that. And now this is the third word for perfect, which is artios. the The connotation of this again in English, what perfect means is there's no flaw. There's no way we could improve something to make it better. It is absolutely perfect. But artios, the meaning of that is that we, some, someone or something is ready because it's been prepared. So it's, uh, it's perfect for the purpose that it's intended for. So when Paul says that the man of God may be perfect, he doesn't mean that the scriptures are going to take away all your flaws. There's going to be no more improvements that can be made. What he's saying is 
you're going to be perfect for the work which God has for you. Now, I, I promised we'd talk a little bit more about Adam and Eve, and this leads right into that. When God saw the world that it was good, what he meant by that was not that the world is morally good. I've created night and day, and that is good as opposed to being evil. What he meant was that it is a good world. It is, it is good at being a world for my purposes. When I have a bicycle and this bicycle works very well, I can say it's a good bike. What I don't mean is that the bike is giving money to the poor. What I mean is that this bike does the job of a bicycle in a good way. It's not going to break down. It's, it's faster. It's lighter than other bicycles. So I like this bicycle because it's a good bike. And that is the, that is the way that God meant the word good. What happened when people took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Then rather than being useful or useless, being the, the spectrum on which good was measured, it was good and evil. So there was good and less good or, good, or useful and useless, and then there was good and evil. People took of this fruit, and all of a sudden, good became a measure of how happy I was in my life. Pleasure became good, and pain became evil. Why was the fruit bad to eat? What that meant was people gained the ability to redefine good and evil according to their own perspective, rather than seeing how useful things were in God's plan. The fruit was never intended to give man the knowledge of how to gauge how useful something was to God because we never had the ability to understand all of God's purposes. So that's a long way of explaining that when Paul is saying that the scriptures will make you perfect, they will give you the ability to be good in the sense that you will be useful to God. And this takes us back to what Paul was saying earlier when he said that the, that Eve was the one who is deceived. In other words, if you are deceived, if you are redefining good and evil for your own purposes, then you have no business teaching the word of God to someone else. And I don't know if Paul did this intentionally, but, those, but this word perfect seemed to me to be evoking an echo of the fall and the way that God described the world as good and the way that the good that God meant was different than the good and evil that Adam and Eve learned to define for themselves when they ate of the forbidden fruit. And so I think that mitigates the sting a little bit when God when when Paul says that women were deceived and therefore women have to you know be in the penalty box basically for the rest of eternity. I don't think that's what he meant. What he meant was because there are some people who are deceived who have learned to redefine good and evil for themselves, then those people before they can teach others, they have to learn to put God's good back into the first priority in their lives rather than, than their own definitions of good and evil. Chapter 3 is also the chapter where Paul talks about how many persecutions that he has suffered. And I don't think there are too many people who've suffered more in the cause of Christ in human history than Paul. We've read about so many of the things that he's gone, uh, undergone, including being stoned to death and left for dead, perhaps even actually dying and being raised from the dead, uh, but also being beaten within an inch of his life, being imprisoned, having everything taken away from him many, many times, and being willing to go through it all and then just keep going and never stopping, giving up his life and being on the road 
basically from the time he was, and being rejected by his own people and persecuted by them, basically from the time he was converted to the end of his life. And the summation of that is in verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So he talks about how there are a lot of people who are going to prosper because they're teaching false doctrine and they're willing to sacrifice their own morals. And then uh, then we have then here we have it in black and white that those who are willing to live godly, you can't expect that life will be totally easy for you because you've accepted Christ. In fact, there are times when you can expect the opposite, unfortunately. But what is the reward? Now we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and this this really is not only a fitting conclusion to our lesson, but a fitting conclusion to Paul's life. He says in verse 6, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. You remember in an earlier epistle, Paul was saying, uh, if I depart, then that's better for me. Uh, if, I, if I remain, that's better for the people that I might teach and bring the gospel to. So whatever God wills about my life is good for me. And now Paul knows that he has finally finished his work on earth. And he says that what I think all of us should find very comforting words in verses 7 and 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Now, Paul has used sports metaphors before, but his most common one is that of running a race. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Paul is saying, I have come to the the end of a very, very long course, but I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. This is Paul saying, God has told me, I know that I have my calling and election made sure. Here's something very, very comforting to me. He says, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So do we love, do we look forward to the idea of Christ coming onto the earth? If we do, then Paul's promise is that there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness. Uh, I'm going to read these words again. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. So none of us, I don't think, I don't. there may be a few, but I doubt it, will suffer as much as Paul suffered in the name of Christ. However, Paul extends this promise, not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. So what is our job? We may not be able to be like Paul, but we can be like Timothy and Titus, people that Paul describes as sober in the faith of Jesus Christ and willing to be faithful, willing to take examples from the people that have been influential in our lives, willing to learn from the scriptures which are God-breathed to bring the Spirit of God into our lives, willing to take heed to the callings that we've been given, the hands that have been placed upon our head, and willing to always remember that it's the generous and undeserved grace of Christ which lifts us from where we are to what we can become. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.